Baby, I'm a gangster too, and it takes me to tango. You don't wanna mess with me, mess with me. Baby, I'm a gangster too. <laughs> Trigger warning. This podcast may include explicit content that will take you out of your comfort zone and make you question reality. Listener's discretion is advised. Don't fuck with me, fellas! This ain't my first time at the rodeo. What's going on, everybody? Today, we are diving into an unsolved true crime case. It is the disappearance of Beverly Rose Potts. And the hosts of the Cleveland Schwill podcast will be joining us tonight to try and solve this case. Now, this is the first installment of a new mini-series for Cleveland Schwill podcast, exposing all of the unsolved and most mysterious crime cases in Cleveland. So, detectives out there, let's put your skills to the test and see who you think is responsible for the disappearance of Beverly Rose Potts. I've of course included a link in the show notes where you can find more of the Cleveland Schwill, but uh, this is a really cool episode. I do enjoy these unsolved crime cases and trying to figure out who I think is responsible. I hope they invite me to do another episode like this with them, but... I may have went a little too hard on them in this episode. They may never again challenge me in my detective skills. (laughs) But no, this was a really fun episode. I always enjoy working with my brother and my cousin. They have a really cool podcast going on. I invite all of you to go check it out. And if they don't invite me to do another episode, I'm going to be pissed off because I feel like I found the true suspect in this case. (laughs) But we'll let you decide. There is going to be a poll on Spotify after the episode has concluded where you can vote for who you believe is responsible for this crime. So there are going to be some major changes coming up on the podcast for season three, 2024. I'm so excited to drop them on you, but We have a few more episodes for December that we got to get through before all the fun stuff starts happening. I hope you all are enjoying the December layout so far. And um, don't forget to leave a five-star review on Spotify or Apple, wherever you're listening to the podcast. Helps grow the show. And leave a five-star review for Cleveland Schwill Podcast. But anyways, let's get to the episode. That was the bait to get you to agree to come on this podcast is the Mad Vagina Butcherer of Cleveland. And that's what... <laughs> no, it's not real. You just baited me on with that? 
I can't believe this, you sneaky people. I never, you knew I wouldn't come on unless vagina was involved in some way. <laughs> or you knew it. A butcher of a vagina. <laughs> well, fair enough. Good on you. But the cool thing about this, all of us getting together for this one, is it is unsolved. I do want my brother's thoughts, feelings, and opinions on what he thinks happened. And he knows nothing about this case at all. I, I don't know a thing. So whatever I know is what you're about to tell me. Mm-hmm. What I what I was actually surprised at, because I had never heard of it, is just how freaking big this case was. It was like the biggest abduction case in the country in the 1940s going into the 50s. Okay. Yeah. But you know what I would compare it to, Brian? Something else that you and I talked about is how big the disappearance of Johnny Gosh was. Oh, I had no idea about that, you know? Mm -hmm. Is that the time frame? Well, no, Johnny Gosh was, I think, in the 80s, but it was one of the first kids on the milk. He was the first kid on a milk carton, right? Or the second. He was like the second officially, but yeah, it started the whole thing. And that was like a huge disappearance. Nobody could find out what happened to him. And this is kind of the same way as like in the 50s, they weren't prepared for this type of a disappearance because it's a young kid. Usually everything's fine, but not on this night. Right. All right. Okay. Do you guys want to? Uh, you want to get started? So, Dave, what I'm going to do is try to paint like a little picture using the Wikipedia page. I'm even going to put that up there and, and tell people the sources that the Wikipedia page used. There was two different big things that had come out of this. There was a documentary that was done in 2005, and and I think also a book was written about this case what i think is really insane is when you start learning about the type of people that may have admitted it the letters that were found underneath somebody's floor you've got and and, but as this stuff starts to unravel you're like the amount of people that fake shit just to get attention or ransom or like when these cases go on yeah. The amount of people that are just the shysters come out, the the people that uh, one guy admitted to the murder only to get extradited to Cleveland because he needed a ride. And then once he got here, he was like, nah, I didn't do it. <laughs> Dude, do you know how desperate you have to be for a ride? <laughs> to, to- <laughs> Admit to a murder <laughs> that gets in prison for the rest of your life. He got out of the cop car. He was like pranked. <laughs> <laughs> he was the first person to use "not" in 1957. He got the ride out there. They're like, did you commit this murder? Yeah, I did. Not. And not. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Okay, okay, we should we should get started with it. We should get started with it. I know you're recording, but I think, I think like- we should just start off like this and say this is a young girl, her name is Beverly Rose Potts. P O T T S. 
The year is 1941. So imagine the culture during this disappearance in 1941. People sleep with their doors open. There's no brink security system in their home. This is a more relaxed decade in time. But, Brian, as we find out, there is a reason why over time people don't let their kids go out by themselves anymore. Yeah, well, even during that time, you know, if you look at the history of Halloran Park, which let me say for anybody that would ever want to find this, that Halloran Park is a very small park in Cleveland. It's south of Lorraine Avenue. It's right off West 117th Street. It's only about a block in size. There's an ice skating rink there. And actually one of the fire stations is there. Fire Station 33 for Cleveland is is right right inside of it. Um, and, and so it's, uh, yeah, it's Halloran ice skating rink. There's like a little small pond, you know, I've never visited it myself. I was unfamiliar with it. I had to look it up, find out where it was, see how small it is. But during that time in the forties, not a lot of street lights. I would do want to paint that picture. There were several cr- crimes that had happened in that area though, to young girls and everybody was aware of it. The parents were aware of it. And they actually were very strict with Beverly about, you know, doing your chores, having a friend with you. You know, you can't stay out too late. And they did make an exception on this night, which is very ironic. Um, And we'll get into all that stuff later. I do want to paint that picture for people, though, thinking uh, poor Beverly Potts. The reality is this. Nobody does know what happened to her. Like officially, no one knows what happened to her. Huge story out of the 1940s abduction right here in Cleveland. And you then have all the rivers were, uh, they dragged all the rivers. They had several scuba divers all throughout the lake looking for a body. Um, They had uh, a few eyewitness accounts as to maybe what happened. And we'll get into those. What could have happened to this poor girl in this area at that time? But nobody got a really good look. She, for the most part, was taught, hey, stay away from strangers. Don't talk to strangers. She was very shy. She wasn't outgoing. Um, But there are, you know, that doesn't mean anything, you know, for that particular night. But, like, Because she was with her friend. She was with a friend of hers that was living in a nearby neighborhood, I want to say. Yeah, like a street or two over. And right. Her but parents. She, dis- she disappeared from a park. So we'll get into exactly where she disappeared. She showed up at, at Halloran Park for a reason. There was a festival going on there. There was like a little um, arts festival where people were performing like uh, uh, different things. And uh, we, we can talk about that. Uh, and that's why she wanted to go there so bad. And it's funny because the family had a trip that Beverly was extremely excited about at Euclid Park at Euclid Beach coming up that weekend. And they, and they, they found that out just through interviewing the family later, because that's also a big part of this. You know, find out if the family had anything to do with it. What's the home life like? And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um but, yeah, she had a little thing planned to Euclid Beach that she was excited about coming up. And 
and she did have siblings. Uh, she did have a sister. Uh, I think, though, as a human interest story, I think what's really interesting about this is we can talk about, too, at the end, like, what this actually did to her family, what this did to her mother, what this did yeah. to her father, what this did to her sister, um, moving forward throughout their life. Yeah. And, um, you know, because a lot of times we talk about the crimes, we talk about who could have possibly done it, but just like the impact on these people, the impact on the community, the amount of volunteers they had from all these different police departments, like just, they almost went into every house they could. And this was a controversial topic, and we can kind of talk about this later, when they were looking for her after her disappearance. But to me, it's not controversial because I don't believe the police should just be able to come into your house and start searching. Oh, okay. right. That's my belief, you know. But the controversial part is a lot of people look at this and go, well, some people denied access to their home because, and, and the police believed, and I agree with them, that without a probable cause, they shouldn't just be searching somebody's house. 100%. Okay. Yep. All right. There's so, they, so they would ask permission and volunteers would ask permission to search homes. But some people denied that and were yeah. like, no, uh, well, I have nothing to do with this. all laying around that they don't want someone to see. You know what I mean? It's like it doesn't necessarily mean there's a crime going on in their house. Well, and, and we also know that depending on who you get in there, depending on who you have come into that house, they may be just looking for something to throw some charges at you. Let's, get this, let's get this person in court. I mean, we people that have dealt with certain authority figures know yes. how the game is played. No, listen, they know I, how the game is I can tell you straight up beyond all doubt, if someone came to my door right this second and said, we're looking for a missing child, let us look through your house, I would not let them do it. No, no, because, no absolutely no doubt about it. I would you decide. turn you turn a peaceful Tuesday afternoon spaghetti night into a fucking oh look at this thing we found. Yes. Him, no, next, him up, next, no, I'm him. in I, yes, I'm in prison for a bomb when yeah. they were well, or 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 let something or something even more uh, innocent in the sense that they're not gonna get you in trouble, but all of a sudden three pieces of your fine silverware are missing. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, anything. It, Thanks if you a lot. There, I doesn't even, it doesn't even have to be a police officer because Zachary laughs at me all the time because if it, it's a security alarm person, if yep. it's an electrician, the AT&T guy, I don't get, I'm not letting a sexual pr predator in my house while yeah. I'm alone. Do you think well, I'm answering the door when I'm alone and letting a sexual pervert into my house to sniff my underwear? You're totally right because people are people and they do stupid shit. And that that's absolutely the thing. So it's like, because here's the other thing. How many stories have you heard about people? They came in your house for an innocent reason. Oh, I was here to deliver a refrigerator or I was here to deliver a package or I was this. That. And they notice something or someone in the house that they get interested in. And then they come back and do terrible shit. That's exactly. Huh. Yes, that's exactly. Well, it, there, there's countless things. It's just safer for the individual, whoever it is. Agreed. If you're not presented with a warrant to yep. be like. You're not coming in my house. There's just too much stuff that can go wrong. You know, it 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 even boils down to this, everybody. And and 
this is not Brian conspiracy theorist. This is just the way the world works. You, your dog's there. A police officer's walking around. The dog starts barking um, because it's scared and he shoots it. Oh, it was going to bite me. That yeah. happens all the time. Yep. I'm telling you guys it, it happens me. all the time. Just it came at me. Shit. And in some cases, you know, I get a police officer has to protect themselves. Maybe somebody does have a dog who's going to try to tear your head off. But there are definite documented cases yes. where the guy was just scared and he fucking killed the thing. Right. But the point here is you can't blame somebody for not just letting police or somebody I just know. through your house looking for something just because yeah. it's for a cause. Doesn't I, mean I, I, cause I agree. And that's what I want to say. You cannot crucify people for just wanting to be live in private and just private. Exactly. And, and not have other human beings in their house. Cannot. It's like so. it's like one of those things where you want so badly to place blame on someone just to close the case because at this point we're talking about 1941. That's how long it's been they still don't have any concrete suspect. Of course they're going and, be- and, and when we and, and guys when you hang on to the end I do want to I I want to reiterate this though. We're going to go over some suspects and and I don't know if you found anybody that you thought, you know what? I'm surprised they didn't dig a little deeper into this one individual because it was shady. Oh, AF, I got guys. Guy. When we talk about this one guy, I got my so guy. shady. I cannot believe they didn't dig into him deeper. I cannot believe it. Brian, but, if you if you picked a different suspect, I'm going to kick your fucking ass all up and down <laughs> this podcast. Because there is only one in my You know, you know who it is. We we know know who it is. is. I know who it is. I'm not going to reveal who it is until the end. But if you pick somebody else, I'm going to be fucking flabbergasted as a mother. When we go over it, I think everybody's going to be like, that's got to be it. Okay, I'm not going to get charged up. I'm not going to get charged up. But I will say it is a complete injustice that this person is not rotting in a jail somewhere. Well, they're dead already. I hope. Well, they, yeah, I right. hope it was a fucking. I, I know who they are. They died. I looked really it up. Dead. They died in 1979. Okay, there you go. So they've been. They, we don't know where they are, but they're not smelling too good. <laughs> they're um, not. Yeah, so, they're not. They're probably cremated or. Uh, well, whatever. Hey, can I can I ask you that before we get too deep into this? I do yeah. want to break point, and this might be completely stupid. But the fact that this stuff is going down in the time of of wartime, and I think you could call it obviously the 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 craziest wartime we've ever been a part of as a country would be mm-hmm. World War Two, right? So do you think the idea and I guess here's where I'm going with this. So if you watch baseball, if you go back and look at baseball in the era that you're talking about, all the good players weren't there. They were literally having women play baseball because all the best players were over fighting in the war. Were the best people in law enforcement over there fighting the war as well? And that's why we can't get any good, like, you guys are like, why didn't they get this guy in jail? Why didn't they question it? Were no. we a team? No, I think, I can't remember what age they drafted to, but I think some of the more senior people that had experience were still around. I mean, uh, at least been some kind of an excuse but going along with my brother's point 
What if you just simply did not have the manpower to pull this shit off? Like you're on a skeleton crew. Right, right, right. You, like, you're working with what you have. Versus you would have had. Mm-hmm. Or it's like that one, that one guy who probably would have solved the case. He's not there right now. Yeah. That guy is left. He's at Baston freezing his ass off in a foxhole. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I do get it. But the thing is, brother, when you see the evidence against this guy, you're you, freaking Helen Keller would have got this guy on something and had him <laughs> locked up. She was right, so, so, so let's talk about Beverly Potts real quick. She was born in 1941. She was disappeared in 1951. So that takes away the World War II thing. All right. Oh, fair. fuck fair. me. Oh. Fuck me. I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, at the time, she was four foot 11. Uh, and let me just give a few distinguishing features. Obviously, if she made it through whatever ordeal this was, uh, she'd be a little bit different, but she was Caucasian, female, 90 pounds, blonde hair, blue eyes. She had a, a scar on her upper arm and a scar on her left elbow. Both of them were small, and she did have like a little kidney-shaped birthmark on the rear of her left foot. Um, they actually say... And I don't, at the time in 1951, Dave, and this goes back to the manpower, it was the largest manhunt in Cleveland history up to that point in manpower. So they went after it. Did I? Yeah. They, went, they went after it. And um, the author who wrote a book, so, you know, this is what it is, said, this is one of the most haunting and heartbreaking mysteries I've ever dove into. And I believe it is one of the most heartbreaking mysteries in the history of Cleveland. That's an, obviously that's an opinion, but we should figure out why and, and then make our own conclusion. Did right. the author of this book do the Franklin Castle tour? <laughs> yeah. <let's, laughs> Let's hope not. Uh, well, listen, listen. I'll be totally honest here. You guys have me absolutely curious as shit. So I like. I need. I the have a timeline. I have a timeline. Brian, can I do the timeline of the events that occurred that afternoon? Yes. Give me. The yes. Details. Before you do it. Before you do it, I just want to say, if anybody wants to reference this case, um, we're going to be using a lot of the Wikipedia page for this. But there was a uh, a book. Uh, I believe it was called Twilight of Innocence, The Disappearance of Beverly Potts. Um, there, they also, some of the stuff that they used in here was actually from a child kidnapping hearing at the Juvenile Justice Committee uh, in front of the United States Senate. Uh, and there was also a, uh, not just the book, but... <sighs> Everything, where was the Beverly Potts disappeared? Okay, so the rest are just articles. I thought that there was also a um, documentary, and I think there is. I just can't find the name of it right now. But I'm sure if you search up Beverly Potts, you'll find the uh, 
the documentary. I think I actually saw one on Amazon Prime. If you if you guys have Amazon Prime listeners, go check it out. I think there is one on there. Um, okay. But we have got to give them a timeline so we can start putting the puzzle pieces together and all of the detectives out there turn your listening ears on. Beverly left the Potts household around 6.55 p.m. Very specifically, 6.55 p.m. She was dressed in a reddish pink turtleneck shirt, blue jeans, navy blue jacket, and brown Carrie Brook shoes. Okay. Beverly and her friend, last name of Swing, are believed to have arrived at the park at approximately 6.58. So this is right by where they're at. Yes, that puts it into perspective. It's, it's within a mile. They lived within a mile of it. Okay. All right. So like a three-minute walk from her home. They arrive at the park 6.58 p.m. And her friend that she was with wanted to leave early. And she begged Beverly to come with her. And Beverly was like, nah, I want to stay and enjoy the rest of the entertainment. And her friend fucked off back to her house, but she later informed investigators she had last seen Potts in the crowd avidly watching the onstage performance at approximately 8.50. So that is the last time her friend saw her alive was 8.50. By 9.30 p.m., the performance event had ended... And 1,500 people at the park began to vacate the premises. So you can see how one little girl, one 10-year-old in a crowd of 1,500 people all leaving at the same time, you might not be able to spot her in a crowd. Right. But at this time there was a 13 year old boy and his name was fred kraus and he believed he saw a girl that he says was beverly walking across the park in a northeastern easterly direction about a hundred yards from the corner of lynette avenue and west 117th street which would have been the quickest route from the park back to the pot's home so now, and that kid for for reference guys i do want to bring this up that kid the thing i liked about his testimony one they were like well are you really sure it was her because one it's dark okay that street that she was on there's only four street lights that's it that's all that was right. on that street okay so they're like, well, how do you know it's her? This kid knew her because he delivered the Cleveland Press newspaper and he delivered it to their home. But he also was a classmate. And he he's like, no, I know her walk anywhere. She's got toes that point out. And we bring it up to her sometimes with the way she walks. And when he said when he said that, I liked that because. There's a lot of people you know, when you see them from a distance, you know it's them just by the way they walk. Yes. I don't know if you guys know that, like yeah. notice that. That's a thing for me. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. So I would say that is actually something that made a lot of sense as well is that she would be headed to the corner of the street that would have been the quickest route for her to get home because she did have a curfew as well her parents were like go to the thing but be back on time so of course she's going to take the quickest route back home her, her classmate sees her apparently but there were other witnesses that informed the investigators that they had seen a girl that they thought was beverly walking near a what they called a stationary battered and crudely painted black 1937 dodge coupe with a quote smoking noisy muffler and do you have something on this brian this is what i well yeah you know there was there was a witness that said that and i god i hate to shed like or like shade on this stuff but there was a witness that said that and there was also a witness that said they had seen uh, a similar vehicle to what you're talking about also a black it was a coupe i think it was a different make and model where they saw her in the back seat Mm -hmm. they saw her tied up in the back seat and they heard her screaming let me out of here um the only problem i have with some of those and i brought this up during the the johnny gosh thing that we did too and Dave, you can give your two cents on this. You guys, th- when these things happen after the fact and all the newspapers show up and they're looking for witnesses and the police and all of a sudden, you got to think, 1951, this, there's no television really going on. There's not like local news showing up, you know, like with cameras in your face. You were going to get notoriety by getting printed in the paper yeah, and some people just want to say something like you saw this little girl tied up in the back, but nobody else saw that. Nobody else heard that. No, you know. I- Wait, let's take it. Let's take it a step further. Can I give a feminine perspective on this? You yes. saw a little girl tied up in the back of a car, and you had fifteen hundred people surrounding you, and you didn't say a fucking word. You know. looked at that right. little girl well, in the back of that car screaming, and you walked away. Yeah. And, and Julie, to your point, here's the other, here's the other thing. This is why eyewitness testimony is becoming more and more scarce in court trials is because it's proven time and time again, that your emotions can affect what your memories are. Mm -hmm. You get it on your mind that this, you know, in hindsight, you start hearing these stories and this and that, then suddenly you have yourself convinced that you saw this girl in the back of a trunk somewhere. But, but you'll make the best point in that moment. If you see that in the moment, you're screaming, you're telling the guy in the car, why is that girl in the back of your car? Get her out of there. You know what I mean? It's not like something you would just think about and say, and then go on about your night. And I I want to reiterate this too about about the idea behind that you don't just go about your night that was like the eighth or ninth uh incident that had happened around that park in the last year with young girls people already know that there's something going on in this area first off yes let's say you were in a dark park by yourself And you hear screaming coming out of the back of a car and you look and there's a little girl tied up in the back of a car screaming for her life for someone to please help, please get me out of here. And you're like, I'm alone in the dark 
I'm a small female. And if I make a noise right now, maybe they'll come after me and put me in the back of the trunk. That wasn't the situation. You are surrounded in a crowd yeah. by 1,500 other yeah. people and you didn't say a fucking word? Well, and there's also the idea that if you're if you're worth half a fart as a as a person who would kidnap somebody, why would you throw them tied up in the back of a car right with 1,500 people walking by? And then <laughs> just sit there. Right. It, it just that that makes because there's one thing I will say about the people who do those sorts of crimes. They are obsessive compulsive about the crimes. Right. Mm-hmm. Don't generally just operate that way. They're not sloppy. Right. Exactly. So what would make more sense is if her schoolmate did see her and she had her toes pointed out and he recognized her. He knew it was Beverly. And she that was makes headed, more sense. That makes more sense. And she was headed to the corner where it would be the quickest from the park yes. back to her house. So now we have to deduct based on that logic. Something must have happened in between the corner of that street and getting back to her house. God, that's so quick. That's just so... And the thing that kills me about this, so, like, I have a 10-year-old daughter um, who's blonde. You know, this particular girl, this is what kills me. She comes to her mother the week before. She's had pigtails her entire life. And if you guys remember the Bob hairstyle becoming popular, begged her mother to get a bob this is like a week before this event to go to this this um you know this event she wants to go to her father middle class works at the allen theater downtown as a stage hand like they just lived a middle class existence she she you know he that was really the only man she had a lot of interaction with she has a 22 year old sister at that time and she's got her mom asked for her little Bob. She's all excited about going to her to this little event. You know, I can just picture my daughter the yeah. same way. 100. She probably wanted to have a show all of her friends her new haircut yeah. at the big well, festival and show her friends. She did the dishes for her mom and added her money to her piggy bank. She got paid five cents to do the little dishes, and then she took her little nickel and she put it in her piggy bank. And that part of that, like she did her chores and stuff, so like that was part of the alibi for the police against the family. Not only did the family take polygraph tests and things like that, but they came back and they're like, "Well, maybe this girl ran away, or what was her home life?" Then they find all her money's in her piggy bank. You know, like a kid who runs away at that age. They're taking the money from the piggy bank. You know what I mean? It's all they have. It's all they got. That's all they know. You know what I mean? So she's like so excited. She, she's got her little 11-year-old friend, Patsy, who's going to go with her to this thing. And they tell jokes. She's a she's like an average student, uh, really mild-mannered. Like uh, She was very shy around men because the only person she knew was her father, really, you know? Uh, so she's not like just going to go up and approach random men. Like if she was saw yeah, speaking to a man, one of the things that, you know, the family was very adamant about there, like she would have probably done that if like somebody approached her about like a babysitting job and she knew the person, 
Like yeah. she might have gone up and been like, oh, yeah, you need help babysitting. She probably would have done that. Or if somebody like looked distressed and she might have stopped for that. That was the only two things that they were like. She would stop and talk to these people. Otherwise, they said it was probably by force. Like right. she was literally grabbed. She's 90 pounds. She's not very big. She's she was big for uh, a 10 year old. Yeah. Uh, from what the family said, she was taller uh, for a 10 year old, but she's not like, you know, she's going to get tossed around by, by a, uh, like a large man. Uh, and uh, she was really adamant about wanting to go and attend this. It's, it was a once a year, it's an annual performance at the park. And uh, one of her great, this little girl's, big interests were the performing arts and that's why her mom and dad were like yeah you can go up there and see this performing art show because we know how much you want to see it i mean i can't imagine uh you know but what they must have thought when she didn't return home and we can get into what did you um put in your timeline what the parents did the second they realized she didn't return I'll let you cover that because I went straight to my suspect list because I wanted to find out what fuck stick could have possibly abducted this child in the three minute walk from the park to the house. And you have to rule out family first, then you have to rule out neighbors, then you have to rule out friends of the family who knew she might have been going from the park to the house. Then you have to rule out people who were at the park. I mean, I immediately just started formulating my suspect list, but if you could lay it on them, Brian. Yeah, real, so, real so, quick, so so let's hit up a couple interesting details here too. When you talk about, you know, he's talking about walking. I do want it to be known that um, this location's a quarter mile from the Potts household three-minute walk the two rode to the park when she rode with her friends they rode on their bicycles guys three-minute walk and they rode their bicycles up there uh she was wearing a reddish pink turtleneck blue jeans navy blue jacket some shoes uh so they they were called Carrie brook shoes I, I think that was a style of shoe but i'm not sure but you had um, the Cleveland press was putting it on. There was talents all over the place. They had singers, dancers, magicians, acrobats, uh, long flatbed trucks that were um, converted to the stage. That's why oh, that's what drew 1500 people to this. Thing, it's, it's like a, it's like this, the County fair shows up. Your kid wants to go. They got probably got face painting and all the shit that kids like. Yeah. And if her parents, more specifically her mom, was a dirtbag and she had a terrible home life, would they have remembered the pinkish reddish tone of her turtleneck, the brand of shoes she was wearing, the, no, I... the color of her jacket, the this, the that, the this? I mean, they're paying attention to this kid. This isn't like one of the lonely yeah. and forgotten. You know what, though? And I do want to say this, like as a as a parent and Brian, you understand this as well. Like once you have a kid in this world, 
your whole life with that kid becomes this like sort of balancing act. Everything in that kid's life is like balanced between letting the kid have visceral experience and protecting them. You yeah. understand? You so, have to find the balance. You have to have that yeah. balance. So like you do? in your life, you can't be that parent that says, I will never let my kid out of my sight. I will never let them walk to the park. I will never let them. And so every decision kind of becomes this thing where you're like sort of going through the, 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 the best parts of it and the worst parts of it. You say, okay, it's a one minute walk. How bad could it be? There's going to be 1500 people there. But I guarantee you there was a quick moment in those parents' life when she first asked to go to that event where they thought, no. You know what I mean? And then you start to back well, off. And you they definitely to thought no. And, and, and I will say, yeah, I, I'm going to say this. I'm sure the parents, as a matter of fact, I think I did read they did say no at first. Yeah. And she was, and she was adamant, like, there's going to be people everywhere. The park had a reputation that when – it got dark. It was not a safe place to be. And, but here's the thing about that, guys. We're talking about not your park of every day. It wasn't, it wasn't the Tuesday and, you know, nobody's at the park day. This is performing right. arts, going with a friend, 1,500 people in attendance with their eyes on things. It was like the perfect storm of it was just really really bad luck i don't know what else to say or it was the perfect opportunity <clears throat> for a predator to strike well because that's you well the thing is predators look predators put them in themselves in places where they can be predators you know what i mean like i don't know how else to say it's it it's opportunistic and, and like yeah. to your point, Julie, someone might have been looking at this event coming up like we just talked about the girl getting her new Bob haircut and she's leading up to this event. She can't wait because she wants to show her friends. There's someone else in the world that can't wait for this event because they're thinking it's an opportunity to do something sinister. Boom. And that's how they think. They prepped it in their mind. Right. They they might have not even had somebody like Beverly picked out, like specifically right. Beverly, but they knew if they just waited long enough around that corner, one of those little girls was going to walk by and yep. it was going to be boom shakalaka and we've never seen her again. Yep. Opportunity. But Brian, I don't know. Do you want to, do you want to kind of get into where the police kind of, started their investigation like suspect wise well i mean i i was going to talk a little bit about once they realized so the potts family starts freaking out by like 10 o'clock guys of course now, this, is, this is the thing that i thought was interesting too okay so they start going to separate streets like they split up they call all the homes that they know but here's the thing that a lot of us don't we, we take this for granted there was a lot of people in the neighborhood that Beverly knew friends wise and everything. They didn't have phones yet. They couldn't even call them. Yeah. They had to go over to the house and be like, um, is Beverly here? You know, she didn't come home and, and think about this too. Like we all like to keep things a little bit private. We never liked it. Well, at least me personally, I wouldn't want everybody to know I'm freaking out or I may have made a bad parent move. Right. Or, 
whatever. But obviously they didn't give a shit when their daughter didn't come home at 10 o'clock. You don't care about that. But if you want to talk about something ripping through a neighborhood like fire, you have something like that happen. I mean, you have to show up at everybody's house. Oh, I'm sorry for disrupting you. I know you're sleeping. Is my daughter here? Right. Oh, she's not, that, she's not home yet? I'll help days, you look. Yeah. At 10 o'clock in those days, everyone was sleeping. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So 10 o'clock, they're trying to retrace her steps. I mean, how you got to think, like, in one hour, how far could this girl have gone? Well, if she got into a car, she could have gotten very far in an hour. But still, I mean, it, it was uh, it was pretty crazy. Um, and then by 11, nobody found any sign then they contact the police. Now, I want to put things into context for people who want to condemn a family for stuff like this. We did a, we did that Johnny Gosh thing opened our eyes. First, there was no laws about they treated missing persons cases the same way they tra- treated an adult missing persons case for children up until the 80s. That's a very like in the last 40 years, that's how it was treated, guys. There wasn't it wasn't separate for children. It wasn't uh, separate for adults. There weren't yeah. separate rules. OK, somebody had to be missing for at least like 48 hours. A lot of times before the police were even going to think about getting involved, because is- how many times did you have a kid that just ran away or wasn't uh, or, or went over to a friend's house and nobody knew where he was? And people were wasting all these police resources, calling this stuff in or go- showing up to the police department. So they didn't do anything. The 50s are a different time for the way they treat these things. And you can call it stupid. You can call it this. So don't condemn the family for not rushing right up to the police station and calling the police station. There weren't laws for that then. It's not how it worked. And the police could have very well laughed you right out of the room if you came in there. And they would have been like, well, she ran away. Call me when she hasn't shown up in 48 hours. That's how stupid it was, but that's how it was. Or they would Whether, be like, check the friend's house, call yeah. people, call right. those Everything people. Everything they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so they officers show up to the Potts household after midnight. So a whole nother hour's gone by before they even get up there. The first thing that they do when they show up, guess what they do? They check your house. They check your, what have you been doing? So they wanted to know what, what did she take with her? What's going on in the house? Let's, let's um, look at the family and start questioning them. Did you do something to this little girl? Why are you coming to us? Did you kill this little girl? What was her home life like? And to be honest with you, that's probably the way you should treat all cases in the beginning, because most people are killed by somebody that they know. That's the truth. are probably trying to cover it up. You know, hindsight being 2020, we know it's not the family now. They did not know that then. They right. did not know it wasn't the family. They don't know anything. Well, you got to start at the beginning. And the, the, the family and the closest people to you are always the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Most people are killed by somebody that they know. It's an unfortunate thing. So then they, after they kind of rule or start ruling out the family, 
then they hit up friends, acquaintances. Um, they start going after people that they just knew were at Halloran Park that day. Um, then this large scale statewide manhunt to locate the child starts bringing up numerous suspects that were interrogated over several weeks. And um, a guy named James MacArthur was the chief detective on this. And he was the head of the investigation. Um, and they assigned, this is besides the 40 or, or besides like all the volunteers and auxiliary policemen and civilians and all this stuff, 45 full-time officers to search for the child 45 wow but you know they did a pretty good job and this is what i'll say she went missing on august the 24th yeah and by august the 29th the Cleveland News reported police had arrested a strong suspect in the case. So from the 24th to the 29th, they have what they're considering to be the strongest suspect in the case. And it's a douche packer named William Slats. And William Slats is 25 years old, unemployed former serviceman who lived with his widow mother on West 116th Street. He had previously been arrested in 1949 for making sexual advances towards an eight-year-old in a fucking movie theater. And he was known to police and locals for his, quote, unhealthy interest in underage girls. So... He lives in the area. He's unemployed, piece of shit fuckbag, living with his mom, has already molested an eight-year-old, has a unhealthy interest in underage girls. So where was he on the night in question? Where well, he- I knew you were going to bring him up. And and first of all, he was, ex- he was a person of extreme interest mm-hmm. in this case. Um, and Dave, wait till you hear this. So his two friends try to make alibis for him, and none of them can corroborate where he really was. I think he, about that. They, he they, says they, he's in Columbus somewhere. And the fucking story. Like, if I was going to ask my friends to cover for me, you'd think you might do a three-way call. Hey, guys, if the police come fucking knocking on your door, tell them I was at the local Goodwill folding fucking clothes for the orphans. You don't fuck you don't let them make up their own story. One friend said this, the other friend said a totally different story. How was he in two places at one time? Well, yeah. and then the police then the police get him back. They talk to his girlfriend and she makes an alibi of I was just making out with him all night. That's what yeah. she says. <laughs> She's like 17 years old. Can't I was making be validated, out validated though. That is her story she said she was making out with him his and they bought it and they bought it and they let him go i know but it doesn't stop there you forgot the fucked up part of this whole thing is they brought him in hooked him up to a polygraph test they said did you abduct or have anything to do with the harm of beverly 
pots and he showed deception over and over and over again. What else did he do? The day after Beverly goes missing, boards up his house and moves across town. Come I, on. Well, okay, first of all, first amen of all. from somebody out there in the audience. Can I get a motherfucking amen? This guy is totally guilty, and I will stand. <laughs> um I he was my number one. I cannot believe he wasn't looked at more, especially when you think of the lengths they go to here to try to find a suspect. Like, I'm still trying to figure out why he wasn't pursued more. Well, um, girlfriend said they were making out. Here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. Here's how law enforcement has to look at these situations. When you have all these different stories, everything you guys just said is super unbelievably suspicious. And none of it means anything. Like, like, think about what you just said. Like, his girlfriend says he was make she was making out with him all night. And then his other friend said this, and his other friend said this, and these stories were all made up. Well, that does still doesn't mean he did it. It might mean he's scared that people think he did it, and he's trying to make up a story to make himself look like or he, he was doing something else completely or he was shady. Else or whatever. Why he the, show deception on the question specifically geared towards Beverly well, Potts. But I will say this. I will say this, Julie. I am a firm, firm believer in polygraphs are bullshit. And I will go to my yeah. death. I'll go to my grave saying they're absolutely worthless. And because they're worthless, that's why cops don't really pay that much attention to them. You can look at them and say, okay. This guy failed. Let's look at him deeper. But here's the point I was getting at. Once you start looking at that guy deeper, if you can't find actual evidence to tie him to the crime, there's no sense in pursuing it. Even well, any the, the reality of it is this, that anybody who's ever dealt with. With the court system knows this, especially if they've had something happen to them, <clears throat> no prosecuting attorney. No yes. prosecutor will take the case because nobody wants to take the L, right? Unless well, there's you guys enough evidence. Just, you guys yeah. should have just represented OJ, you bastards. This you, listen, <laughs> I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. But let me tell you something, Julie. This is this is the truth. Me, me, and my old manager, John Malm. We, I used to be hanging out at his house all, all the time. Mem you remember the Casey Anthony case, of course. OK, and everybody wanted to hang this girl up by her freaking pinky toes. Dave, how could you not want to hang that woman up? Of course, of course, of course. And John wanted to hang her up by her pinky toes. And I kept on saying, listen, I believe she's guilty. I believe she's guilty. I believe she killed her kid. I believe 100 percent. But I said, I'm looking at the evidence and I'm saying to you that the evidence in this case shows that she should be acquitted because there's nothing really tying her to the case. I, I believe she did it, but you have to follow the evidence. And that's what we're talking about here. If cops and a prosecutor and somebody gets it on their mind that this guy looks guilty as hell, but there's nothing to actually tie them to this case, you might spend a million dollars prosecuting this person and they just walk. Let and me let me, let me side with you for just a second. Let me get out of my emotions. Let me get out of my 
opinions and tell you what the problem is. The same thing when I was looking into who I thought could be the Zodiac killer. People choose a suspect first and then yeah. they make yeah. the evidence match the suspect. We've talked about this and, so many um, times. Yeah. Looking at the evidence and letting the evidence lead you to the suspect. So I right. will agree with you there. There's nothing to tie this raping, molesting piece of fucking <laughs> dog shit yep. asshole. Yes. Yeah. And because here's the other thing, and I say this all the time, if there's a chance that something could happen, you know what I mean? People say this all the time. They're like, you know, when you get on an airplane to fly, you know, you're technically safer than when you're in your car. And I always think to myself, it's like, yeah, that's true. But if there's a chance that something could happen, technically it's 50 50 because when you're in the air, like every single person that gets on a plane says the same thing. Everything, every time before they get on the plane, they say, yeah, I'm technically safer than in my car. But yet that plane sometimes crashes to the ground. So my point is just because there's a rapist pedophile right in the area with no alibi doesn't mean that a different crazy fucking pedophile didn't drive through at the same exact time, roll down his window, yank her through the window of the car, just drive away and never look back. And that it is, is stone cold reality. But if if you lived in a neighborhood where there was a convicted raping, molesting piece of shit who has already been found guilty of doing it to one eight year old, would you not find it a, at least a little bit suspicious or sus in any way that he? boarded his house up the day after she disappeared and like took off yes you totally would find that suspicious and that's why i bet he was the absolute bar none number one suspect for those cops for a minute but they were never able to actually come up with anything that tied him directly to it putting boards on your windows and moving away after a murder doesn't prove anything it just doesn't it because, looks you know looks what the problem is we don't have a body. That's the problem. There's no body. There's no weapon. There's no witness. There's no nothing. And that's yeah, why the, the reality is, I think up. back then, too, without a body, you don't even have a murder. Dude, today, there's still no murder if you don't have a body. I mean, I it's that's so imagine in the 40s or 50s. You know what I mean? You literally have so little to go off of and you have to walk in a courtroom and say, we know this guy did it because he put boards on his windows. There's no way to win that trial. Fuck There's you. No you know it's true. You know what I'm saying is absolutely true. And that's why I'm saying the guy was probably, he could have very well been guilty. The well, cops probably thought he was guilty, but there's nothing you can do. It depends, doesn't it? Because your jury is a, uh, what did they say? A jury of your peers, as they say. Yeah. They better not fucking put me on jury duty because I will be the one motherfucker that hangs that motherfucking jury. I will well, say guilty, guilty. And listen, guilty. Julie, listen, I say this all the time, even going back to like Casey Anthony or OJ Simpson or any of these classic people who were thought to be guilty and got off of their crimes, their their lives were over. They never lived the same life after that. OJ's never had his life back. Casey Anthony's never had her life back. Kyle Rittenhouse will never have his life back. That, that 
it once you get in the public opinion like that, they've already been convicted in the court of public. Uh, uh, even and you know what's crazy too for the normal person. I say this all the time for your average everyday person. Just an accusation against you, if it goes to trial, they believe there's enough evidence for it to go to trial. If somebody convicted me of murder and they thought there was enough evidence for it to go to trial, if I did not do it, I'm still done. Because half the people you know are going to think you did it. 100. Even if you're... innocent they think you do it and it would cost me so much money i'd be destitute yeah after i paid all the lawyers after i did everything because if you if you just say i can't afford this uh give me a public you know representation he's just going to come in and say let's figure out how we're going to plea this down for you you're right um, exactly uh, you're going to serve 15 years uh you're going to do that you're going to fucking prison mm-hmm. if you don't pay if you don't mortgage your home, get rid of all your possessions. That's why, and, and this is not me being prejudiced against uh, wealthy people, but if you're wealthy in this country, like if you truly are wealthy, you can get the fuck off of whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, a like speeding ticket means nothing to them. $300 speeding ticket across the board. It's not a percentage based thing to your income. It's yeah. 300 bucks. Yeah. Well, if somebody who has $300 million, that's nothing to me. Now I'm deciding, okay, am I getting groceries or am I paying the mortgage? Yep. That's what happens to normal people, to wealthy people. That's not what happens. And if they go to trial, they get all these different Lawyers who are just like, we're going to get you out of this. We know how to get you out of this. It's going to cost you a million dollars, which is nothing to you. Mm -hmm. For me, I'm going to have to be like, hey, man, I got you for about two weeks. Let's figure out. All right, we'll get you a plea deal. And you're going to prison. And everybody's going to think you're guilty and you lose your life over. That's just, well, it, well, think, think about the Johnny Depp and the Amber Heard trial or whatever. They were literally, they could have turned that into a reality TV show, for God's sake. It exactly. was not, it was just it was like theatrical almost. Yeah. Memes yeah. came out of it. It was a joke. Well, but but I think the <clears> point <throat> is when no matter what happens in the trial, it, it almost doesn't look at what I just said. Look at the people I just brought up. These people were all acquitted. Casey Anthony, OJ Simpson, Kyle Rittenhouse. They're almost every single one of those names I just mentioned are known commonly as pariahs in society no Mm. one would want anything to do with any three of those people and they were all acquitted in a court of law it's because you make up your mind already i actually read something one time that a jury makes up its mind if the person in the trial they're in are guilty or innocent in the first half hour that that that's the truth so they haven't even literally heard both opening arguments yet and they've already made up their mind if this person's innocent or guilty just in the first half hour of sitting in the well and you've got two you've got a a prosecution and a defense attorney who are picking juries strictly based off of wait a second that person looks like they would like like the prosecution's like hey they'd be prejudiced against them they'd be prejudiced they'd be prejudiced against them and then you've got the defense who's like, they look like my 
my client. They look like my client. They look like somebody who would be sympathetic to my client. Yeah. They ask the jury questions because they want the bi most biased people. If you come in there and you're like, yeah, my mind's open. Or neither side, both sides are like, we don't yeah. want you. They want we don't you want to get out of here. Don't yeah. you just make a, like an objective opinion about this? Get out of here. Yep. Get out of here, you logical piece of shit. You know, have you guys have you guys watched this stuff on Gypsy Rose? That girl who killed her mom that she had Munchausen syndrome and her mm -hmm. mom was poisoning her and making her sick and like all this stuff and she got went crazy and killed her mom. And she's serving time in prison right now for murdering her mom after her mom was poisoning her on purpose her entire life, y'all. You tell me that's justice. Well, I can't tell you anything is justice, man. It's all so freaking That's what I say. It's like, yeah, you're right. Hearing that story right there, what you just said to me, that sounds absolutely crazy. But it's like, you know, there's somebody somewhere that's sitting there saying, that was my sister she killed. I need justice. You know? And, like, you have to look at it from all angles of, like... You let me represent her. I would have said... I would have said not guilty by reason of insanity. She, yeah. she done put Drano in her soup 18 times. Hey. She's got a few brain cells missing. But the problem in this case is we don't have a body. So what do we do from there? On August the 26th, they came out with Walter Slats, the guy who I thought was a very strong suspect. But they couldn't. They let him go. They said, "All right, fuck off, Walter." Yeah, and, and in the meantime, they've got uh, media broadcasts, newspaper articles. This was like one of the biggest stories in the whole country. The FBI came out and said, "Hey, we've got a fifteen hundred dollar reward, which is basically like twenty thousand dollars today. If you have any idea what happens to this uh, or happened to this child." Uh, police artist sketches are going out all over the place. 22,000 circulars nationwide are put out of Beverly Potts. Um, and the labor union, the stagehands labor union that the father worked for at the Allen Theater, they even put together their own reward based off of uh, any information that they could find for a kidnapper. So... I mean, there this, was this... no ransom note. There was no evidence to even try to follow a paper trail. Nothing. There was no physical evidence whatsoever. But the crazy thing is, on September 4th, that same year, there was a dude working at a warehouse. His name was Henry Palmer. And he, I guess he called the police or alerted, alerted authorities that he had observed a human-shaped cloth wrapped uh a human shaped cloth wrapped form measuring approximately five feet floating in the Cuyahoga River he wasn't the only one who called that in they don't know the other people's names but other people right. that's what gave me credibility to that because other people said I saw that body too floating in the Cuyahoga it. River could like, not find it but it was a wrapped thing yeah yeah well, Five I, tall. but I, I'll say about this though. Eventually, that thing would have popped up. Now, maybe people saw something. I know the lake bad. brings everything back. But dude, you eventually find that. I'm sorry. That like I just that sounds crazy to me that ten people would see this thing and then it would just disappear off. The face well, of especially me. Dave. Imagine this too. They dragged all the creeks. They've dragged. They dragged yeah. pools. They 
they dragged the Rocky River right down. Uh, you know, that's pretty far away from it, as far as I'm concerned, but they dragged the Rocky River. They uh, they had planes going up in the air, looking all around, looking in empty fields. They went in warehouses. Like, these people went everywhere looking for somebody. It's crazy. Well, I'll say this. From everything I've heard right this second, guys, I, I, every instinct in my body feels like this was one of those weird things where somebody did something in the blink of an eye. A car just drove up. There was an opportunity. They just drank, they jerked this kid in the car and they drove away and they never looked back. Like, the problem like, is, though, brother, that there has even been people, they, they have accused a bunch of people. They accused people that were peddling pornographic photos. They say um, that one of the girls in the photos was depicted to be Beverly Potts, but they found out it wasn't. And then, um, there, there was the guy like Brian was saying at the beginning of the episode who just needed a ride to 7-Eleven. So he freaking admitted to killing Beverly Potts and then was like, yeah, never mind, I didn't. Um, but there were people who, let me see here. So you have, there was the guy, this, you guys, this is what's the crazy thing about all these stories. We've covered other stories like this before. And the one thing that always comes up is the snakes come out of the grass when when these things happen. Um, they had to have a detective bring the mail to the Potts family because they had to intercept all mail because the amount of people that wrote either hateful things or uh, ransom notes or fake tips or uh, because once there's an award there, all of a sudden. There's somebody who just wants the money. Maybe I'll be able to get that money if I give some kind of fake tip. They'll give it to me. Uh, you know, that 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 monetary reward brings out some snakes. Then you've got the people who just are sickos that get off on trying to uh, jerk the family around. Then you've and got the people who are seeking ransom. There was one guy who straight up said, you know, send me five grand and I'll get your daughter back to you. And he wanted to meet in front of the terminal tower downtown and he was going to make an exchange. And it was this huge, like, I, you know, 1950s exchange where they were going to have a fake woman or a police woman dressed as the mother who he wanted to, pick, you know, do the exchange with who was going to arrest this man. And there was agents all over the place. And then when the guy showed up, uh, they arrest him and then they come to find out, hey, I was just in it for the money. And he ended up serving time in prison, by the way. But, yeah, you know, that, that's what you get with this shit. Shithead. But, the, but, Brian, you know, some of these were pretty compelling, but then they turned out to be, as my brother was saying, in no way possible connected to the body, connected to physical evidence. They couldn't really pin anything secure on any of these suspects so i kind of fast forwarded to february 1994 okay did you or do you want me to say what happened in 1994 oh you you can say it you can say it do you okay so brother this is the year i was born 
Okay. Literally 30 years ago, a new break in the case. Think about that. She goes missing in 1951, and there's suddenly this break in the case in 1994. And Ooh. it's so obscure. There was um there was a couple that was renovating a house on Midvale Avenue in Cleveland. They're digging up the walls or they're digging up the floors, a total reno of this house. And they discover several pieces of notebook paper alongside of a man's shirt that was beneath some old carpeting on the stairs. So they pull out the note and everything. And the author of this note is a lady named Anna Hainick. And she recorded in detail what she insisted were the true facts surrounding the abduction and murder of Beverly Potts. And she insisted that it had been committed by no one other than her own husband, Steve Hainick, who was 40 years old at the time of the crime. And he actually turned out to be the Potts milkman. So there is a little bit of a connection there. And in this handwritten note, she said that her husband had previously raped Beverly's mother and was therefore Beverly's bio dad. Yep, if you can believe that. And then Potts herself had died of an accidental drug overdose before her husband had dismembered the child's body, if I'm correct. Brian, did you find this? So, yeah, I did. Um, did you look into the her confession later, or do you not want me to say that? Because they the police went and found the woman who wrote that. Yeah, she said that she couldn't remember writing it or something like that. Or Well, no, no. She straight up then admits, I wrote it as fantasy fiction because my husband abused me. And I wanted him to get in trouble. But why hide it under the stairs? With a with a shirt. And, and, and here's the thing. Here's the thing, too, though. She did say this after her husband was already dead. The, the husband of the time was already dead when she made that confession. Um, but, the, but the crazy thing to me is in the note, she said she caught her husband in the act of incinerating the child's body in the basement furnace. Yeah. And so that's why there's no body. The dude was the milkman for the Potts family. Mm-hmm. Who, who Beverly was, knew where she lived, was in a close proximity to the crime scene. Let's say crime scene, quote unquote, the three minute walk between the park and her house. I I mean, there's been times where my husband has pissed me the fuck off. I don't write a murder novel and then hide it under my carpet with one of his dirty shirts for somebody to find next time they want to tear out one of the walls. Yeah, it's just so extreme as fuck. It's random. You know, there's a lot of really interesting ones. I mean, in the 70s, there was a woman who claimed she was a friend of Beverly Potts uh, and that she knew the individual who did it and she and, and killed her and buried her buried Beverly in a grease pit, gave the location. They actually dug it up to find nothing, to find that there was nothing going on. That was off West 52nd Street. 
Then in the 80s, I think this is an interesting one. Uh, in the 80s, there was an attorney who came, who had a client, and he gave an anonymous tip that the client's brother confessed to abducting Beverly. And detectives found and questioned the brother who admitted to having lived near Halloran, Halloran Park in 1951. He had a habit of picking up and molesting girls. He'd been, he'd done it several times. He didn't remember abducting Potts in particular, but he said he had flashes of molesting a little girl named Beverly. Flashes of memories of, of molesting. Of doing, yeah, of molesting a girl named Beverly. Um, but they refused to pursue the case due to lack of evidence because it was all like hearsay stuff. Well, that's and what this, you said, the lack of evidence. That that's what this stuff is, man. There there yeah, is a confessions. Such, there is a such thing as the perfect crime. There really is. If you leave no evidence behind, unless you can get a cop to actually break you down and make you confess, there's really no way to convict you of it. Okay, but brother, how many episodes of forensic files have you watched? Excuse me? Are you trying to act like you didn't grow up with the same mother that I grew up with? I was scared that every person I met was a sexual predator, okay? Sure. Because of all of the forensic files we watched. They didn't test the t-shirt that was buried with the fucking note that was hidden inside the wall. They didn't want to test that t-shirt. Maybe there's some DNA on that shit. Yeah, I would agree with why that. Did they, why did they didn't even test it? There has to be something they tested, though. Maybe they got the guy's DNA on something else. Maybe they got, like, you know what I mean? It's like, there just can't be. There has to be some reason why you give up on something like that. The, 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 the stuff that continued, though, I mean, let's think about what we're talking about here. We're talking about the 1970s. Well, there was a bunch of stuff that happened in the 50s, but that made sense, right? You have all these people coming, trying to collect money. Uh, it had national spotlight attention and stuff like that. But then you... Now you're in the 70s. Okay, we're 24 years past the incident happening when some of the stuff that we just talked about happened. Then we get into the 80s and we talk about that attorney who's so now we're 30 some years. But then we get into the 90s where we're talking 40 some years. Let me even throw this one at you. Let's go 50 years in the future. The Cleveland Plain Dealer starts getting anonymous letters. They're handwritten to the editorial office. Now, this guy says, guess what, everybody? I'm terminally ill. I'm in my twilight years. And I would like to confess to murdering Beverly Potts before I die. And he goes on to say, I only wanted to sexually molest and fondle her. But once I got her into my vehicle, she starts screaming. I don't know what to do. This girl is screaming in my car, so I want to quiet her down. So I start hitting her. I start, I struck her a bunch of times and all that stuff. Well, after I've quieted her, quote unquote, by striking her a few times, now I begin to sexually fondle her. But when I'm done... I now realize I've killed her. 
And this is all shit he's writing in this um this little to the editorial board of the plain dealer, like handwritten. <clears throat> so you know what the investigators say? You know what? They're skeptical, but they've gotten so many letters that had been sent, and there's so many false claims, so many previous hoaxes, all of this other stuff. They finally said, hey, why don't you turn yourself in before you go to the nursing home? Just turn yourself in. We'll take care of you once you're here. You make a confession. You tell us about it. All this other stuff. Fuck would he want to do that anyways? Let me just be kind of blunt about that. Even if I'm in my twilight years, I'm not yeah. turning myself. Well, and, and the other thing, too, when they ask him how he disposes of the body, he's like, I threw it in Lake Erie. My ass. Really, My really. Ass. You know you know what I mean? Like, really, really vague and generic. Threw it in Lake Erie. So, they do this investigation. They can't figure out his identity, but they do ask him to show up. And by the time, I think the, they received a bunch of letters all the way up till 2002 they view them as hoaxes because when they finally asked him to come, he writes back, no, I'm just going to go into the nursing home. I've changed my mind. The end? The end. The end. They don't know who wrote those letters. Tell you. Let me tell you what really happened, guys. Let me tell you what really happened to Beverly Potts. Do you want to know? Yes, I want to know. Tell me. The murdering, raping, molesting, piece of shit motherfucker, William Slates, <laughs> abducted her and fondalized her and fucking threw her body and fucking mutilated it and fucking buried it or some shit. That is my belief. I think William Slates did it or Slats or fucking William did this shit. I th That is my belief. I think he had something to do with it. If not, it was a roving band of Satan worshippers, and she was used as a ritual sacrifice, and they they buried the carcass somewhere. I I I would love. Am to I off breathe. base? Well, Am I off base? No, but here's what I'll say. I well, think that guy did something to deserve whatever in his life, but I don't know if he did that exact. I don't know if he did that. He he was doing something suspicious sketchy as fuck when the thing went down i just don't know if he was doing that that's my thing yeah and i mean julie here's the other thing is like as much as as much as you want you know i'll go back to the movie seven and in the movie seven they talked about how when they were they were search hunting the serial killer down and he looks at he looks over at at uh what's his name's character in it uh brad pitt's character and he goes I know you're thinking that when we catch this guy, he's going to be Satan himself, but he's probably just a very regular guy who just is just did something extraordinary in, in a moment. You know what I mean? And it's like, right. I think I think as much as you want to believe there's a roving gang of Satan worshipers around, this is probably some pervert who just got lucky in the moment. And the thing I, about it is when you look in, when you look at history, you're completely accurate when you say that. Because Ted Bundy, regular dude, 
wore um, suits and glasses and was in law school and everybody loved him and you'd never guess it. Jeffrey Dahmer worked at a chocolate factory and had a nice haircut, was pleasant to his neighbors, offered them ham sandwiches every now and again. You never know who you're living next to. There was another serial murderer named Dorothea Puente, and she took in old people into her house and was going to nurse them back to health and was slowly poisoning them to death. A little old lady murdered them and then buried them in her backyard. But that's the point. That's a little old lady. That's not Satan. That's not a roving. Well, she worships Satan. But you understand what I mean is these are. These are regular people that get caught up in weird, fucked up situations. And sometimes, and I'll just use this as an example. You're probably not even old enough to remember this. But there used to be this thing at Taco Bell, (laughs) this little aquarium looking thing. And you could drop coins in the top of it and try to catch them on a little platform. Seven years old. Of course, I played the coin game. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, so listen. You might drop a thousand coins in this thing and not one of them ever catch on anything. But every now and then one of those coins just drops in perfectly and drops right on the thing and you win your free goddamn taco. And it's like, that's the point that I think is what happened here is some pervert saw an opportunity in a quick moment and it was the perfect opportunity and he jerked this girl in the car and she was never seen again. And that's well, it. Well, Dave, let, big let me tell you. Let me ask you this, then. Let me tell you about William Henry Redmond. Ohio native. He was a carnival truck driver, and he was the Ferris wheel operator. Bam. He had an extensive record of child molestage or molestation, and uh, it went all the way back to 1935. He actually got indicted for killing an eight-year-old girl in Pennsylvania. The body was discovered in his carnival vehicle and fingerprints were discovered at the crime scene. However, he fled the state, assumed a different alias, and he wasn't even located again until 1988 in Nebraska. So when they were questioning him because he had been through the area, he refused to say if he had ever been there. He was terminally ill at that time. They're like, we won't even bring any other charges against you. But did you have anything to do with Beverly Potts? And he's like, I'm not making a statement. I have nothing to do with that case. I'm not making a statement about the other case. I have nothing to do with that other case. And um, with that, he dies in 1992. With, but the thing uh, about it is the family begged over and over again that they didn't care who did it or why they did it. If the, someone could just make an anonymous tip where the body was because they just wanted to bury her. Like even just slip a note into the mailbox of the police office and just say the body is here. Type it up and, and mail it and just be completely anonymous and just tell us where her body is. Please, we just want to bury her. And they still got no response. So you have to think of the mind of this person. If they're not going to say where the body is, but they're going to write this whole novel about I'm in my twilight years and I just want to confess and tell you all these cruelties. Why why wouldn't they say where the body is? Why wouldn't they say where the body is? 
Yep, one hundred percent. And that's I why, agree. I don't get it. I really don't get it. But that's why I'm saying, man, this field, this just reeks of some opportunistic person just happening to be in the area. Like that. That's the whole thing. Is man, you can't you can't control where these people go in their lives. He that some weird pedophile might have had a family. <laughs> that he was visiting just that day had never been in Cleveland before in his entire life and would never be back again and was there watching that same show in that same park and just mm-hmm. opportunistically grabs this girl throws her in the car drives her back to Nebraska or Iowa or wherever the hell he was from and that's why no one will ever know a thing about it ever again she's in the back of a barn somewhere in Iowa you know it's like that that's the, the most- whole thing. You know, but that to me is the most heartbreaking part of it, because when you look at a lot of serial murderers or even just one time murderers, you always have a body, whether they've been slightly congealed in a vat of acid or not, or buried or whatever, decapitated. You have some remnant of a body to work with or to bury right. or to or lay down. or blood or something, something, something. And so to me, the most disturbing part about this is there's that this little girl one night with her little bob haircut that her parents said, see you back around 10 and never yep. fucking saw her little face again. That is the, most that's the point that that's the balancing act of being a parent is allowing your kid to be free and also keeping them safe. And it's it's the thing that will be there's just no right or wrong way to do it well and and we call it safe but there's dangers there's dangers associated with never allowing your children to experience and doing yes absolutely that's how they develop into people well well look here you can't say i want to keep my kids safe from death so i'm never going to allow them to live yeah it's like that's like that that's the balancing act you you they have to have visceral experience they have to enjoy their life and you have to keep them as safe as possible. And frankly, there's just no 100% foolproof way to keep your kid safe. You, there's just no way to do it. You know, I, I do want to tap into something before we, we even just talk about just Beverly. I, I, in the aftermath of all this, you know, when, even if this family would have received justice in the sense of, oh, now we know who did it. And I put justice in quotes because... You know who pays the ultimate price when these crimes occur each and every time is the families. They pay the ultimate price uh, throughout throughout the years, and it's really sad. And uh, I just want to talk about what happened to the family uh, in the years uh, preceding uh, or, or pr- prior to. And uh, so her sister, who was 22 at the time, she moves and ends up having three children. So she moved in 1952, the year after this happened. Mary's has three kids. The mother died at age 56 of liver disease in 1956. So that, to me, if it was like cirrhosis or something, she may have drank herself to death. I don't know what it was. That's what I, I was going to say. You know what? The thing is, I, I'm speculating there. I did not get that. I don't want to say that's what it, But the reality is, you're never going to be the same. And then the father, uh, he went downhill for years. Uh, ends up living alone for several years. 
and then has heart failure in 1970. So, I mean, he, he went 19 years before he passes away, but went 16 years by himself, 17 years by himself, something like that. But his wife had already died, and then he ends up dying. And they actually find him slumped over on the couch in the living room, television's on, and he's actually uh, buried at West Park Cemetery um, in Cuyahoga County. And they actually have a plot waiting for Beverly, if she's ever found, to be oh, buried. God, uh, that's the saddest <laughs> shit I've ever heard. Are you, you know what I mean? Just like you said, there, you know. That's that's I mean this stuff hits the families, man. Yeah, absolutely. You know? well, they they pay the ultimate price. The thing about it is, this wasn't the first little girl that had went missing in this area. I don't know if they were able to find the bodies or if it they were just molested and then they survived the ordeal. But there had been other girls that this had happened to in this specific area in Cleveland. And what Brian and I had kind of talked about is there is so much of this crazy, unexplained and unsolved shit that has happened just in Cleveland. You could start a whole mini series just on stories like Beverly that have happened. I'm not saying like Cleveland is this dark and, you know, this is like a vortex of death. But it's crazy just in one small town how many unsolved murders... Or um, even I had talked to Brian about it, the, the Kingsbury Butcher or whatever they called it. The Torso. Mad, the mad, mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run or Torso Murder, yeah. I mean, think about that. Yeah, it. but I bet you, I bet you if you start looking into the history of almost every area, You'll find this everywhere because in the end, human beings are barbarians and we still are. Mm -hmm. Your instincts kick in. Human beings are capable of the most grotesque behaviors that you could ever imagine. And it doesn't matter where you live or if you're in a city or if you're in a farmhouse or if you're in like, you know what I mean? It's like you could be David Berkowitz in the city or you could be, you know, what's his name out in the country making lamps out of people's back skin. You know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. like seriously, it doesn't matter. It just people do crazy things. And like, if you really get into the history of places, you're going to see some things you probably don't make you too happy. You know, I forgot to mention earlier, but I had asked Brian who he was going to pick as his number one suspect. And I'm curious now who your number one suspect was. If it was my guy. Walter if, Slats or whatever the fuck. If I had to pick one, it would have been Walter Slats. Yeah. I just I, I he was doing something that day. You know, the thing is, I I understand Dave's argument. Can you go to court and win a trial with the evidence that's presented against him? The dude's doing some shady shit. He was doing something that night. I mean, just the fact that he was 25 years old, his girlfriend's 17. She comes out and says, yeah, he's making out with me. He's taken off to Columbus. He's out of there. He lived right in the area. 
there was a witness that saw two 17 to 20 year old boys like talking to somebody in a car or about to do something, you know, or in a car talking to some young girl uh, that they thought was Beverly Potts. You know I, I what mean, sucks, Brian, is that you can't use your gut instinct to convict someone. Because I'm going to tell you right now, if they would let me, I could tell you who was guilty or not without seeing a shred of fucking evidence just based <laughs> on my gut feeling. It's called no, there's, there's, the problem is there are some people real fucking there, thing. There are some people out there that can completely fool you on that. Brian, no, I'm talking about the things that cannot be seen. I'm talking about opening up your your intuition onto somebody. Like, have you ever been to a party or something and you walk into a room and you know exactly which people you want to talk to and exactly which people you want to avoid without saying a word to them? It's just a vibe you get off of somebody. I don't need to know a thing about someone. I'd be, I get weird vibes around that guy. And then, oh, you know what? Find out old Joe at the church that passed around the collection plate was fucking collecting eight-year-olds in his house yeah that's called the intuition and i'm telling you walter slats did this shit my well my my so to give you what my perspective is i think it could be somewhere right in between i think it's one of two things i think either this slats guy you're talking about did it and got unbelievably lucky to leave no true evidence But I will say this. You're talking about a 25-year-old guy, a 17-year-old girlfriend, right? Is that right? Mm -hmm. And he's all over the place. No real skills of any kind. No real anything. I'm telling you, man, to do the perfect crime and leave behind no evidence, there's something to that. And that's what I'm saying. As much as you want to hate that slats guy. He just doesn't, to me, he doesn't fit the profile of somebody who can pull off something like that and not leave a trace. You know, the the biggest thing is the fact that the body never turns up. Right. What if he buried the body in the basement uh, of the foundation of the house, buried it, put fucking dirt over it, boarded his fucking house up and fled town? That's what I but 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 how many twenty five year olds do you know can do that? I listen. Just keep this in mind. Keep this in mind. Eight year old at a theater. My daughter Madison is almost that age, and I can tell you she is she is incapable of pulling something like that off. <laughs> I, and, and she's brilliant for her age. i'm saying to you think about what 25 year olds are in this world they're absolute morons they can put gas in their car challenge you he she's not 25 in 1950 fucking one she's 25 in 2023 where you can't fucking let a fart out without somebody knowing about it well then the alternative is this dude just got lucky. He buried the body somewhere where just some nobody ever happens to go. Nobody saw him. There was no witnesses. He never talked to anybody about it. He never wrote something down about it. He never did any there nothing none of that. Just okay, a 25-year-old stone cold fucking killer who committed the perfect crime. When's the last time you went to a festival? Taste of Tremont, Grape Jamboree, I don't give a fuck. When's the last time you went to a festival? I mean, not that long ago. Okay, I mean, give me like an approximate. Six months ago? Six months, yeah. 
Hey, were you with people? Yes. If I called up those people right now and said, hey, do you remember the Taste of Tremont Festival? Oh, yeah, you, we, we went about six months ago. Was Dave there? Yeah, he was there. He ate corny dogs and drank root beer and did all the things. Okay, cool. Thanks for the alibi. Why are his friends making up two different stories and then his girlfriend a third story about where he was that night? Julie, that's what I'm trying to say to you. Looking guilty and being guilty are two completely different things. People do people then? do stupid things in this world. People do absolutely moronic, stupid things in this world, and they have no explanation for it. And later, dude, people full blown confess to crimes that they had nothing to do with. Okay, let me let me tell that's you. That's a re obviously they did it with this with, with this. Right. So so that's my point is there's a reason why circumstantial <laughs> circumstantial. You cannot convict somebody on it because as much as you want to believe it and it seems true and feels true and feels good to say it might not be true. And that's the bottom line. And what I'm saying to you is my instinct is a 25 year old degenerate douchebag pedophile probably doesn't have it in him to hide a body where no FBI agent in the world can find it. And I, what I, I, what I it want to tell the listeners right now is if I ever have to kill a motherfucker, I am hiring my brother, David, to represent me in court because <laughs> fuck you. Fuck you. Hey, I would have got Casey Anthony off too. Oh, I'm uh, sure I, you guys would have went to fucking Trump Sizzler afterwards. Trump. You want to clang a few cocktails together? <laughs> you know, uh, but I, I, before we kind of go into the close, I do want to say this: what what really struck me though about this Beverly Potts case is one that I had never heard of it, and I've lived in this area for almost forty years. Yeah, me neither. That's crazy. Uh, but the other thing that really struck me is, Dave, even up to twenty fifteen, in twenty fifteen. I read an article. It was from like uh, Cleveland.com or something. Somebody had been writing into the police and they were begging. They were giving tips on the whereabouts of Beverly Potts' body. Yeah. And what had happened. And they gave tips. Okay. That's all the police would say. And the police then said, yeah, we actually took the time to go try to corroborate or try to figure out if what they were saying was true. They go, the information they gave us checked out. Will you please call us back again and tell us the next step? And that's how cryptic it was. And that was it. That was in 2015. Yeah. Dude, at some point, anyone involved is just going to be dead, though. You know what I mean? It's like oh, they're like. And, sure. and here's the craziest part, guys. 2015's almost 10 years ago now. Yes. Think We're about getting it. to that point. <laughs> yes. That's so wild. And that's insane. So crazy. And that that's what I mean. It's like at some point, as disappointing as it is, some of these things you just have to say, we're probably never going to know. No, we're, we're just probably never going to know, you know, like like it just, you know, if if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a noise? You know what I mean? If they find if they find a body, if they find a body, they may figure it out. 
that's Dude, the truth. No, right. no, that, the body is fucking dust at this point. But my thing is, like, as human beings, we have to have an ending to the story. We have to have the last chapter. But, but here, have- Julia, oh, what you're forgetting, there. what you're forgetting is this. We did the Johnny Gosh episode, and we also did a Boy in the Box episode. And while we were doing the Boy in the Box episode, granted, that is one that was 70 years old at that point, that case, I think. Mm-hmm. Because re- because of the DNA evidence now, they had a body. Then they were able to check that against the 23andMe. And we've been over this. I don't know how many times that now that all these people have put their DNA in these. Um, and then 23andMe and all this other stuff. The they can figure out uh, paternal, maternal sides, paternal sides. Oh, you had five kids? Which one's missing? Oh, there's only one missing here. This must be the father. This must be the son. This person must be. They find it just by genetic match. So if they find a body. Yep. Case there's, a, there's a good chance they'll be able to find genetic match because Beverly Potts' sister had three children, who I'm sure some of them had children. Um, and those children are probably still alive, too, some of them. Um, and they will start checking against all this stuff. But you know, the crazy thing is, even with the 23andMe and like word of mouth throughout a family, is you grow up thinking, I don't know, we're we're Irish or we're Dutch or we're something like that. And you get stories from like your grandparents or your great grandparents and you think some certain thing about yourself. And then you do a 23andMe and then you're like, I'm not Irish at all. or like you know what i'm saying so it's like i get it why word of mouth testimony and some stuff like it's the it's too long ago people don't remember right or they remember what they want to remember and that's why you can't i i get it with like eyewitness testimony and stuff like that well julie i don't ever want to live and i guess here's the point that i really want to make is yes there's going to be a few casey anthony's that get off right But I think it's worth it in a world where you know you're not going to be able to just throw people in jail because somebody just says something weird. You know what I mean? Or 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 because somebody just because it looks bad or because you happen to be sleeping in your car outside of a bank that got robbed. Well, and because of because if you ever let society get to that point. Anybody can be arrested at any time because yeah. people have the money to set your ass up. So the second that they can set you up, they will set you up and they will let it be known that I still think to this day, I think one of the easiest ways to get rid of one of your adversaries is just to be like, yeah, there's pornographic pictures on this computer. Uh, uh, yeah. Of children, FBI, get over there. Boom. Dude, the second that happens, you're done. Yeah. Yes, you're done. Well, because and, and Julie, again, here's what I'll say. The only thing more tragic than never finding the killer of somebody who was murdered is having an innocent person in jail for that crime. I agree with you completely. I do agree with you. But I actually had a funny story about the 23 and me for for just a little comic relief. You okay. know, Every white person says that there's some fraction of a quarter of a segment of a Cherokee 
or something like that. I'm I'm a quarter Cherokee from my grandpa's side or something like that. It's Not me. Literally, <laughs> Zachary has grown up thinking that he was some fraction of a quarter of a segment of a Cherokee or a Navajo or something like this Native American. He does a 23 in me. And I was like, you know, you are kind of you are kind of yellow. You have the the lighter complexion. I can see that. Turns out his great grandmother was completely caucasity. That motherfucker is 20% Caucasian. <laughs> hey, does he ever watch Grey's Anatomy when you're not looking? <laughs> all his friends are like all his friends are like you you know you can dance a little bit but you just can't dance as well as us <laughs> what, what's wrong with you he gets a little too excited when sweet caroline comes on at the show <laughs> <laughs> See, that's why I'm telling you, you cannot go by word of mouth. Because if I was to take his word for it, his great-grandmother was a Cherokee priestess, medicine woman of the shaman tribe and all this stuff. No, she was a baloney-eating, corn-frying, motherfucking white lady. And that's why I say you just never know. You never know. Well, you can't go by word of mouth. Well, because what I say, the easiest things in this world to believe are the things you want to believe. Well, everybody wants to believe they're an Indian uh, medicine man somewhere down the line. You know, I'm going to tell you guys something that you probably don't know. But uh, I did the 23 in me and I'm actually point three percent black. I knew it. Yeah. That means I would have to be maybe. I, oh, I'm I'm point three percent black, straight out of Africa. Do you know what mine said, Brian? Yeah. Hmm. You know what my shit said? What? I was seven percent North African. There you go. Mine said seven percent North African, and it circled. My up. eyes are so good. Is that is that uh, Nefertiti over there? That's what I'm saying. Mine would come back 50% Swedish and 50% milk. <laughs> Mine 50% Swedish and 2% fish because Ten, I love Swedish fish. 10% white, 15%. Hey, I'm going to say this, guys. Anybody who, and when you learn about those tests, and I, I know we're not trying to do an episode on these tests, but... Now, when you learn about it, they, they pretty much say, geneticists pretty much say anything that comes up um, below 2% is pretty much just get rid of that. Don't even think about that. It's like, just in the wash. It's just, yeah. it's well, just I'm wash. thinking about my 7%. And I also had 2% like some other kind of weird something. I can show you guys. I took a screenshot of it. I think that it was something from my dad's side. But they're mostly inbred on that side, so I don't know what's going <laughs> but, well, but brother, before we wrap up for the night, I do want to ask you, are you interested? Are you intrigued in continuing maybe a mini series on the unsolved mysteries of Cleveland? Yes. I'm always interested in this stuff. And this one, this well, one really 
got the got the fire burning. Well, let me tell you one one thing. I want to do a teaser for an upcomer because I learned about a guy who lived in Cleveland who went to a hospital. This is the teaser. He went to the hospital for lacerations on his penis due to the fact that he put a vacuum cleaner on it and could quite possibly be the Zodiac Killer. Until next time. <laughs> Cleveland Swell. Oh, oh, dude, dude, that's a, that's like, you know, the cliffhanger. That's like a lost caliber cliffhanger right there. That's like Breaking Bad. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't think I can say anything else. What can you I, even say to that? Vacuum cleaner, penis, and Zodiac in the same sentence? How do you even finish that? Oh, my God. How am I going to even sleep tonight? <laughs> we'll find do you want to tell the listeners where they can find your music, find more of you, if they just can't get enough of you? Who, me? Yes, you. If you want to find, if you want to find me, you know where to find me. You can find me at thesunrisejones.com. You can find me at uptightsugar.com. You can listen to my music on Spotify or Apple Music or anywhere like that. Uptight Sugar, search it. It's the only thing that'll pop up. And Or you can just like send me messages on Facebook and Instagram and ask me stupid questions or whatever you want to do. I'm yeah, out you know for anything. I do have another Cleveland Unsolved Mystery now that you just sparked my my uh, cognition here i have a brother biological brother that i love dearly that is a musician very successful and has not written my intro song brian do you want to tell the listeners where they can find you if they want more of the cleveland schwill <laughs> yep I, you can find cleveland schwill um on instagram just look up cleveland schwill uh, Schwill, S-C-H-W-I-L-L. -L. And you can also find me on pretty much any spot where uh, podcasts are found. Uh, we're, we're on all major platforms. And uh, we're going to be trying to do a little series on true crime coming up along with other things. But I think this is good. This is a good segue into some really interesting stuff for Cleveland, especially throughout its history. So absolutely fun. Well, thank you guys for joining me for another kick-ass episode. I really appreciate it. And to all the listeners, thank you so much. And we will catch you on the next one. I can't seem to face up to the facts. I'm tense and nervous and I can't relax. I can't sleep because my bed's on fire. Killer